0: You know, 30 years ago on my wedding day, my pastor uh, stood with me and my wife in front of everybody after we said our vows, and then he launched into this interesting thing. He said, at the end of it all, "By the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel and according to the laws of the state, I now pronounce you man and wife." And a change happened to me. A category changed. I moved out of the category of bachelor and into the category of husband. It's so crazy, guys. I really became a husband and everybody started acting like I really was a husband after that. It's, (laughs) it's crazy. Like I, like is he, let's get him under, let's get him under a microscope and see if he's really a husband. You know, no, they, they acted like I really had changed into a husband.
1: Hello and welcome to another melodious episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. Um, for those of you who've been following us week by week, uh, you might have known that there's a little bit of time we took off. We had some Christmas happen and, and some other things. But those of you just discovering us for the first time, you're probably wondering why we're even making reference to that. But either way, we are here. We are with the Coming Home Network. If you don't know much about us, please come check us out at chnetwork.com. Dot org. Um, We're a whole network full of people who came from various backgrounds, some Christians, some non christian some, some pastors, some laity. We all have ended up in the Catholic Church, and we're kind of trying to share those experiences and those lines of reasoning. And we have a community, an online community, where we do that uh, kind of 24-7. That's community.chnetwork.org. And just so I make sure in the new year, we're sending mm-hmm. people to the right website. Kenny Burchard, if people want to make a gift to support this or any other efforts, where should we? Where should we send them at this point in the game?
0: Yeah, right now, just go to chnetwork.org/donate, and everything's right there. We'd love, we'd love to hear from you on that page of the website for sure.
1: <laughs> well, the real reason I tossed you just there is because you're the Pentecostal in the group, and you're a lot more comfortable asking for money than I am.
0: So. I, I, I know <laughs> how to take offerings. I know how to. I learned how to. That's do right.
1: That. <laughs> Well, that being said, uh, you know, the, the cool thing about this is that we try and make it available to people as much as possible, and uh the generosity of a bunch of people has made that made that happen. Yes. Uh we are talking about the mass, um well and we've been talking about it for a number of weeks and a lot of different aspects of it. And today, I just want to kind of stray out of the gates. Most of the time we talk about like our experiences, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit today, but we're mostly gonna be telling you like Here's what the church has to say about this stuff, because a lot of people are like, well, Catholics yes. think this or Catholics think that. Today, we're going to be like pretty explicit about what the church teaches about these sorts of things. So Kenny, if you could set us up.
0: Yeah, um, exactly right, Matt. Today, we're going to do our best to say what the church says about especially the part of the mass that we're in right now, which is the liturgy of the Eucharist. And last in the last episode, which, by the way, guys, good to see you again after <laughs> such a long break. Um, but in in the last episode, we started this discussion, which really then was a high-level look at the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and we kind of went through the whole thing. Today, we're going to look a lot more closely at all of this, um, and we're going to see it. I, I hope that the, those who are watching can see it uh, in a way that was helpful to me, the way Bishop Robert Barron describes it, as the great prayer of the Church. Uh, which is we're going to unpack today is a prayer that God answers every time in a dramatic and substantive way. So we're going to look at the liturgy of the Eucharist today, where Jesus visits his church, body, soul, blood, and divinity.
1: All right. And so I just want to key in very quickly before we get into some of that other stuff. You mentioned that this is the prayer of the church, of the masses, a prayer. It has lots of prayers, plural, in it, but it is itself exactly <laughs> one thing. So that being said, uh, when you started um, as a Pentecostal pastor, or Ken uh, Hensley, as a Baptist pastor, and you're doing uh, your sermon, the shorter sermon because it's Communion Sunday, and then you do your communion. Did you think of that as this is a prayer? Like, how did you think about this um, no. as you were presenting the Lord's Supper?
0: I can tell you guys, and we've we've shared this a little bit, but to to reiterate, and maybe expand a little bit. There was no sense in our celebration, uh, which we understood, in which we understood that God was uh, responding in a specific and and divine action in our communion celebration, that He was answering a particular prayer in a particular way. For instance, by doing something like changing ordinary bread. And wine or grape juice into the body and blood of Christ. We did not understand that that was happening in my denominational background, which is the four square gospel church. Our doctrinal statement says that the Lord's Supper is presented as a memorial celebration of the last supper. And, you know, one way of understanding that is it's kind of like celebrating uh, someone's birthday. We're having a birthday party and we're getting that person in here or having, you know, a Christmas celebration or an Easter celebration where we're remembering fondly and with in a celebratory way, some event that's happened in the past and we're, we're glad about it and we're having a celebration and we're remembering it. Um, and in, in that sense, it's uh, a symbolic, uh, kind of devotional, reflective type of, uh, of gathering in which something that happened long ago is being remembered now. But there's no sense, guys, in which we believe that the event of Calvary, what Jesus did on the cross, was being made present. If I can say it this way, coming forward, being remembered in that way, and being made present in a substantive way in our gathering. This is all just an attempt by our congregation to do what we thought the Bible was saying, and that's to reflect on this past event in our prayers. And so, just to give you an example of our prayers, we might say something like this. Uh, as we eat this bread, we thank the Lord for giving us His body upon the cross you know, long ago. And as we drink this cup, we thank the Lord for pouring out His blood upon the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins, and then we would drink the cup. There was an attempt to link the bread and the cup symbolically to the past event, but the purpose was devotional, and primarily it was happening in our minds, not in the sense that this heavenly reality was coming into our gathering and overlapping in time, space, and matter in a way that was substantive. And and I'll, I'll just stop right there. Well, how about you, Hensley?
2: I could say something, but I don't. It's been so long; I don't really recognize you, too. I don't know what I'm doing here today. Um, <laughs> been been a while. Oh, <laughs>
1: like a no. man who looks in the mirror and forgets his own <laughs> reflection.
2: No, let me just say this, and I'm going to do this with as much eloquence as I can, you know, garner. I think you've said it really well, Kenny, and I would just say ditto, <laughs> basically ditto. Of course, that that's how I view the, the Lord's Supper. Term yeah as a time of remembrance there was no sense at all that uh that this was a great prayer that was being offered that god was answering and that something was happening no sense of that at all but let's go ahead and move along that's all i have right. to say
0: so, yeah so so now yeah. now as catholics we're saying that that the mass that, that the celebration of the eucharist is a prayer that god answers and we're, we we got to unpack that yeah um you know in the episode
1: yeah, very briefly, all I'll say is um, is my uh, added ditto, although in my Wesleyan tradition, specifically when I was going to a liberal arts college in the Wesleyan tradition, you did have some people who were along the spectrum of how to understand this, and some of them did get more serious into consubstantiality. But I will say sure. that um, that whole idea, uh, the things that you brought up— um, as Catholics, there are elements of those things in the way that we approach communion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Elements of devotion yes. and, and memorial and, and, and all that. But I think that we all had kind of this perspective, or even if we didn't have it explicitly, we all heard the perspective that Catholics um, were recrucifying Jesus at mass, re-sacrificing mm-hmm. him because it wasn't good enough the first time around. So uh, hopefully, Kenny, right. by some of the stuff you're about to say, that'll help lay a little bit of that to rest.
0: So we want to work through it. Like, what do we believe? What are we proclaiming? What are we celebrating as Catholics? And the way that we want to try to unpack this in this episode, which, as we said, will be teaching heavy today and quotation Mm -hmm. heavy today, is to look at the initial elements in the liturgy of the Eucharist. We won't get through them all. We're going to get to the point in the celebration of the Eucharist where transubstantiation happens. And so we, we want to work through how that happens in the liturgy then we are going to need to do a bit of an excursus on transubstantiation for a few minutes with some reflection from early christian writers ken will carry you know carry the book of the weight on that and some biblical material and then we want to maybe end our time today with some contemporary both philosophical and theological reflection that has been helpful to us as we have thought about the way the catholic church understands the celebration of the Eucharist. Um, And so I'm just going to dive in, guys. First of all, as we said in the last uh, um, episode, (laughs) the celebration of the liturgy of the Eucharist begins with the preparation and the presentation of the gifts. And by the gifts, we mean the bread and the wine and the water that are used Uh, on the table of uh, the Eucharistic celebration, the altar. And also this is a time where we bring our gifts of uh, uh, tithes and offerings and alms and so forth. So this is a time of bringing things forward. We are theologically telegraphing something that's happening here. Um, and, And what we're telegraphing is that we're bringing our lives to God in every way. Uh, and, and and I want to share just a concept here that was helpful to me, because if you go to a Catholic liturgy at this point, especially in the rite that we celebrate, oftentimes someone will, will walk forward with bread and wine and water, and the ushers will begin, you know, passing out baskets to collect offerings. There's something happening here uh, in which all of this bringing forth of gifts symbolizes bringing our lives to God. Now, I shared this with Ken yesterday, that when I lived in Japan, I learned a word. Japanese people everywhere would say it just before they would take their first bite of food. They would hold up maybe their chopsticks and their dish, and they would say, before taking their first bite, they would say, itadakimasu, itadakimasu. And my wife, who I met in Japan, said, do you know what that word means? I said, I don't, I have no idea. She said, it's kind of like saying... Well, the sun was shining and the rain was falling on the field and there was a seed in the field and it got some rain and sunlight and it grew <laughs> and someone came and tilled that up and nurtured it and then it, it, it became mature and it was harvested and then it was taken to the mill and it was turned into, you know, what you're eating now on your plate. And someone prepared it and took it to the market and cooked it in a kitchen and brought it out and is sitting in front of you. And itadakimasu is a way of honoring all that has gone into making this meal that's sitting in front of you possible. Well, in the same way, we are by bringing our gifts forward to the altar. We're having, if I can say it this way, an itadakimasu where we're bringing our whole lives and all that God has been doing in our lives up to this point. We're bringing Mm -hmm. that all forward in the celebration of the Mass in which we come to God through Jesus.
2: Yeah, by the way, Kenny, if I can jump in here quickly, I just want to make a comment. This is why, as Catholics, we have no problem speaking of the bread and the wine as symbols of the body and blood right. of Christ. Now, um, I have a friend who is an evangelical, and we we got together for dinner a few weeks back, and and he, he brought to me what sometimes... Protestant apologists will bring. And that is, they will assemble quotations from the early church fathers, especially, you find it'll be Origen and Clement of Alexandria, who were very allegorical in their interpretation. Everything was symbolic. They will assemble some quotations from Origen and and Clement of Alexandria mainly, where they speak of the bread and wine as symbols, or where they speak of the Eucharist itself as being symbolic symbols. And they'll use this Mm -hmm. to argue against the common Catholic assertion that the early church believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Okay, they'll say, hey, look at these guys, though. They speak of it as symbolic. Well, the problem, of course, is this, and I want to try and answer that quickly, is that Protestants who, that is the kind of Protestants who hold that the bread and wine are nothing more than symbols throughout the Lord's Supper, they have to explain away the many, many, many passages from the early church fathers that speak so explicitly and clearly of the bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. And so what I said to my friend was, you know what, as Catholics, here's the problem for for you. As Catholics, we can accept both quotations. We can accept quotations from the early fathers that speak of it as symbolic and quotations that speak of it as real. The problem that you have is that you can only accept the quotations that are saying symbolic and you have to figure some way to explain away the ones that are describing it as real. And so I just want to make that point. When we receive the consecrated host and the chalice in the Eucharist, we are receiving signs. Looks like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread, you know, put it under a microscope, same with the wine. We are receiving signs, but these are sacramental signs, we remember. These are what the catechism refers to as efficacious signs. That is, they are signs that convey the reality to which they point.
1: It's a symbol yeah. that is what it, yeah. it refers to. Yeah. It, so, and the only thing I was going to add to this <clears throat> is the last time I saw you all all in person. When was it? Well, and just as a background, uh, it was at our little staff retreat Christmas party thingy okay. a little bit ago. Um, I'm
2: starting to recognize really you. I, I, I am experience. starting to recognize you now, Matt. I, I'm starting to recognize
1: you. It's, if you're confused, which was, I'm the bald one. So... Um, there are elements of this that are there are kind of like ite dake mases um, within some of my Protestant world, and right. one of these kind of came <clears throat> back into uh, the forefront of my memory and imagination when we met for this thing and we got ready to have lunch. And Monsignor Steenson, who is um, uh, sort of like a chaplain of the Coming Home Network, mm-hmm. he was an Episcopalian bishop who became Catholic right. and um, has a background in the Ordinariate, said, "Hey, you mind if we sing the blessing instead of just pray it?" And we're like, sure. Mm-hmm. And he says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. You know, And every single person in that room who's a former Protestant, now Catholic, who probably hadn't sung that thing in like decades, some of us. Just jumped in. All chimed in. The context right. in which we sang that in my world is this is the thing we sang every time we brought up the offering. Right. Right. So there's that element of that that was part of it. Right. There there was that sense that like we were given our money, but we were also like symbolically saying this is who we are. This is the first fruits um, in our language. The tithe is being brought into the storehouse like this is. So there was element, an element or two of that in a lot of the places that many of us came from in our evangelical context.
0: Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that That's so good. That's so good. What, what I want those who are listening and watching, whether you've been a lifelong Catholic or you're just visiting a mass, and you're like, what's going on here? Why are these people walking forward with bread and wine and water and giving their offerings at this time? Well, it's because in the mass, what we are doing is, is having communion with God. And in order to do that, we have to bring our lives to God. And we do begin, guys, as, as we already said, with symbols. But those symbols are transformed from the ordinary to the extraordinary. And so a piece of bread and a cup of wine symbolize, they really symbolize the fact that we've been out there working We've been employing our gifts, our abilities, our time, our energy to take the things that God has made and make food out of those things. That is a re- a representation, a symbolic presentation of the fact that this little piece of bread and this wine that I'm bringing to God now to be consecrated, to become extraordinary, is a way of saying, I'm bringing you my life, God. So if you're at the Mass now, next time you're at Mass and you see the gifts coming forward, You you could just pray right there, and Lord, I bring you my whole life, even as these gifts are coming forward to the altar now. I'm I'm presenting myself to you in this bread and this wine. Okay, so now as those gifts come forward, they're received by the priest who places them on the altar, and he begins to, so they're presented first, prepared second. And one example of the prayer that a Catholic priest (coughs) might, Say or pray during the preparation of gifts is a prayer over the offerings or a prayer of consecration. If you've been in the ordinary form of the Roman Rite, you've probably heard something like this. I'll read it now. The priest will say, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you. Fruit of the earth. Listen to that now. Here's the theology. Fruit of the earth and the work of human hands. The first part there is, you know, our lives. God has made all this. We've made it into food. We're bringing it to you, Lord, as the fruit of the earth and work of human hands. Now listen to the next part of the prayer. It will become, the priest prays this, it will become for us the bread of life to which we all respond in the Mass, blessed be God forever, in in a way of saying, you know, God's going to take this ordinary thing, this ordinary life, this ordinary bread and wine, and turn it into something extraordinary. Now it's, it's almost Kenny this... as though
1: you're saying, "Praise God, from whom all blessings flow."
0: Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and that's why. And this we yeah. want to say this over and over in this episode that this prayer of the church is a lot of prayers, and 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 I'll say this over and over again, and God will answer every one of these prayers in the celebration of the Eucharist. Oh, Lord, we brought you our lives. We brought you bread and wine. Turn it into the bread of life. God God will do that in our midst, and we'll see it here in just a minute. Now, after the prayer of the consecration of these elements on the altar, the entire church begins to join in this great prayer at the priest's invitation. Most often, it goes like this. Pray. (laughs) This very next word out of the priest's mouth after all the gifts have been prepared are pray. He says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. In other words, he's inviting us into this great prayer. Pray that God does something here. And we pray. Here's our prayer. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, for the praise and glory of his name, for our good, and the good of all his holy church. Now, like I said already, and here I'll say it again, it's a prayer that God answers because of what we've already learned. We're offering ourselves back to God through Jesus, and God is accepting us into his family through Jesus. And it's in this ritual action that communion happens between God and and his people, both in heaven and in earth, by the way. The whole church, the heavenly and earthly church, is participating in this prayer. So, from the perspective of Catholic sacramental theology, the word communion here, guys, means all that it implies. Communion with God is really happening in this moment. We commune through Jesus with God, God communes through Jesus with us, and the sacramental place, the heaven and earth place, where this communion happens is the bread and the wine, which, as the priest is about to pray, become the body and blood of Jesus. So that's where we're at in the Mass. There's the bread. We've prayed that God will accept the sacrifice. Let me pause. Any any thoughts?
2: Right. One thought, Kenny, is this reminds me of a conversation you and I had a few months ago, and how important it is that 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 the congregants actually say these words. A lot of people just want to yes. stand there and be silent. Yes. That's not
0: good. That's not right. Go ahead and express that. Right. No. Yeah, I mean, we 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 don't watch the mass. We're not spectators in right. the mass. We are participants. We are, you know, listen to the priest and how he wants us to be involved. Pray, brothers and sisters. And yeah. then he says, my sacrifice and yours. This is uh, the whole congregation involved in this in this prayer. You, you wanted to say something, Matt, or add something there.
1: Yeah, the only thing I was g- just going to add is, um, you know, in relation to kind of what, what um, Ken Hensley was saying, uh, there's this sort of uh, I mean, the, the, the Latin verb is assistere, right? Um, and the way that sometimes you'll hear older Catholics say that they assisted at mass, right? And mm-hmm, to a Protestant, mm-hmm. they're like, that's confusing, right? <laughs> it was confusing to me the first few times I hear it. What that means right. is basically like attend and participate. <clears throat> and so, um, and, and this is, this is also a very important distinction to make. Like, um, and it'll come up in what you're about to say, like only the priest Mm -hmm. has the hands that have been anointed and blessed through apostolic succession to actually consecrate these things. But he still Mm -hmm. invites us to say the we part at a whole bunch of different places, right? Um, Just like a priest in the Old Covenant would say, here I am for all the people, Mm -hmm. right? And all the people Mm -hmm. are kind of there saying, all right, we're with you, (laughs) right? I mean, it's a very... It's very rooted in the way that God has kind of always worked with His people.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go back and you look at tabernacle worship in the in the book of books of <coughs> Exodus and and Leviticus, people have to bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle. Um, it's, and they're involved; they are very much involved in the in the entire action of atonement and of fellowship and approach to God. And this is, again, telegraphed and explicitly presented in the language that's used in the rite, in the celebration. This is why, Father, you know, the priest will say, pray, brothers and sisters, my sacrifice and yours. So I encourage anybody who's watching, participating in a liturgy, not to be passive. Say every word. Pray every word. It's your Um, liturgical place to be involved in this. Okay, (laughs) what I want to do next, guys, and hopefully this will help me do it quickly, is I actually want to use as the source for everything that I'm about to cover section seventy nine of or paragraph seventy nine. Of the Roman Missal, in the general instruction for for the Roman Missal, you can act, if you go to your your church, you can say, "Hey, Father, where's the Missal?" Turn to page, uh, turn to paragraph seventy nine in the general instruction, and you can read the what the Church teaches about what is happening. In one part of the Missal, there is all the words of celebration and what what we say. But in this section, in the instructional section of the Missal. We are told what it all means and what's happening and what the church believes about it. Like you said at the beginning of the episode, Matt, we want to say what the church says about all this. So I'm going to be reading, forgive me if I seem to be reading, but I want to say what the church says in the next section, how the church understands what's taking place now in this part of the Mass. So section 79, uh, never forget that. And in, in, in letter A of section 79 is called the Thanksgiving. Let me read it. It says, quote, expressed especially in the preface, that is, of the prayer, in which the priest, in the name of the whole of the holy people, get that, everyone's included in this, glorifies God the Father and gives thanks to him for the whole work of salvation or for some particular aspect of it according to to the varying day, festivity, or time of year. And so that's, that's as much as I want to say uh, right there, or, or is it? Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, my comment right here. As the priest leads us through the next section, he again draws our attention to the communion that's happening and all that will continue to unfold more and more with a prayer of thanksgiving, uh, Eucharista. This is the prayer of thanksgiving, which begins like this, after, after we say, may the Lord accept your sacrifice. The priest says this, the Lord be with you, we say, and with your spirit. He says, lift up your hearts, we say, we lift them up to the Lord. He says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, we say, it is right and just. Pause right there to unpack that. He's saying, give thanks to God we're saying it's right and just. In other words, this is what we owe God. And that is exactly what the priest says next. He says, it truly is right and just. And then he turns his attention to God. He says, it is our duty and our salvation. In that sense, he's saying, it's our duty to present ourselves to God in this thankful way. And then he begins to do it. And then that prayer That whole long section of prayer ends with an affirmation that the whole communion of saints, our congregation, and the heavenly host are all participating in this um, because of the acclamation. And it goes like this. I'm reading letter B from section 79. The acclamation by which the whole congregation, joining with the heavenly powers, sings the sanctus, holy, 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 This acclamation, which constitutes part of the Eucharistic prayer itself, is pronounced by all the people with the priest. I like to say it this way at the the Sanctus, at the Holy, Holy, Holy. We fall on our knees before God. (laughs) Like Some people say, oh, we kneel. No, we fall on our knees before God, who's holy, who's coming into this gathering of his people with his real presence. What else? What's a more proper response at this point in the prayer than to fall on your knees before God and proclaim how holy he is? And then, while we're on our knees, letter C on section 79, the epiclesis says this. Well, before I say what it says, epiclesis, guys, a word that we used, learned before, epi upon, uh, kaleo, kalesis, to call, to call upon, to call down upon. If you're in the Mass, you will see the priest at this point extend his hand over the chalice and over the the bread, the host. Uh, He'll extend his hand either both together in a triangle or one hand, and he will call upon the Lord. Here's what the general instruction says. The Epiclesis, in which by means of particular invocations, we'll come back to that in a minute, The church implores the power of the Holy Spirit, that the gifts offered by human hands be consecrated, that is, become Christ's body and blood, and that the unblemished sacrificial victim to be consumed in communion may be for the salvation of those who will partake in it. (laughs) In other words, what did we already say? It's a prayer that God answers. We're praying that that bread, and the priest is, uh, is, is uh, praying at his hands, we're praying with him, that that bread will become the body and blood of Christ. Bread and wine will become the body and blood of Christ, and God answers the prayer in the affirmative. Just a couple more things, and then I need to stop. After the Epiclesis, we have the institution, narrative, and consecration by which, by means of the words and actions of Christ— Now, Jesus is going to get involved. Uh, The actions of Christ, the sacrifice is effected, which Christ himself instituted during the Last Supper when he offered his body and blood under the species of bread and wine, gave them to the apostles to eat and drink, and leaving with the latter the command to perpetuate the same mystery. What is all that? It means that the priest is going to quote, word for word, the words of Jesus at the Last Supper and then the last thing i want to say here b- before we move on is letter e the anamnesis or the anamnesis this is the greek word for remember or remembrance it's the opposite of amnesia it's total recall that's about what's uh, is uh, what's about to happen in our gathering total recall is about to happen A- anamnesis is about to happen here's what it says By which the church fulfilling the command that she received from Christ the Lord through the apostles celebrates the memorial of Christ, recalling, there's the word the church uses, total recall, recalling especially his blessed passion, glorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. So now it's at this point in the celebration of the Eucharist that something has changed. We are no longer talking about simple bread and wine anymore when we look up at the altar. Now we're saying that that bread and the wine, in answer to a prayer, or in the last episode, by God, through the prayer of the church at the hands of the priests, have, in the priest's words, become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I need to stop talking for a minute take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> all of that is to say that we have been praying together and, and God has been getting involved in our prayer. Uh, we're acknowledging through all these prayers that, that God is doing something uh, miraculous in our midst.
1: So I, I want to get some of Ken's thoughts on this as well. This is a very uh, it's a very interesting reflection you've shared, Kenny Burchard, uh, on how the church invented this process in the 1300s, you know, <laughs> and has decided to formalize this. Except this is the thing, right? And we've talked about this in a whole bunch of different places, Um and, well, well, we can talk about it more, but this is how Justin Martyr, in that big, long passage that Ken read at the beginning of this series, talked about the same thing, right? It's not like this yes. is something that... That's, that's that's new to the process. The other thing that I was reflecting on, too, as you were bringing up the Epiclesis, and I can't remember in which capacities. I've had this conversation with you publicly and privately, so forgive me if this is a repeat. <clears throat> but, you know, I remember in the Church of the Nazarene, we'd have revival services like once a quarter. We'd invite some evangelist in, and we'd have Tuesday through Thursday him preach three nights of sermons, and he'd pray that the Holy Spirit would come. We'd pray in preparation that the Holy Spirit would come down. And right. hopefully that happened. Right? Hopefully it happened. But you as a Pentecostal, when you prayed, you prayed an expectation because there's a promise that the Holy Spirit made to you. And that's what's happening here in the Mass. That's why, you know, among other things, Pentecostals kind of get this once it clicks in ways that other Christians don't necessarily do. Because when you're calling down the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a level of expectation that you're holding up your end of the promise and the Holy Spirit's holding up the Holy Spirit's into the
0: promise, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I I and I know we've talked about this before, and that's why I say Pentecostals especially should have no problem with this. I mean, I remember you know back in the days when I was a, a vineyard guy, uh, which was the, really the first group of Christians that I hung out with. We would sing this old song. I, I don't remember who wrote it. It might have been John Wimber. I don't know. Forgive me, Charismatics, if I'm wrong. But we would sing. Come, Holy Spirit, hear us calling. Come, Holy Spirit, hear us calling. Like we, we, and we'd sing this over and over again. Come, Holy Spirit, hear us calling, hear us calling to you. And now I look at that and say, well, what did you expect to happen? You know, like, did you expect God to answer your prayer? Come, Holy Spirit? What was he going to do? So I look at, and now as Catholics, what I have just read out of the instruction of the Roman Missal is, that the whole church is praying with the priest, kind of like that old song, come Holy Spirit, hear us calling. And we're asking God, we're asking heaven and earth to be joined together in the body and blood of Christ in our midst. And as Catholics, we expect God, not only expect, but believe that God answers that prayer every single time we get together and celebrate the mass. All right, so then the question becomes kenny uh
1: how do we know that that's true? All that stuff you just said these are all beautiful words and uh poetic and um you know appealing to the power of Christ, but how do we how how do we believe that this actually happens
0: yeah we so what we want to do with the with the time that remains is 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 answer that exact question in summary, how is it possible for us to say? That God is answering this prayer that bread and wine may become for us the body and blood of Christ. How do we come to accept that something like this is is really what's happening? And so I'm gonna just I'm gonna pass the ball to Ken because I've been talking a lot now, and and Ken has a lot of material that he's developed and, and, and unpacked before. So uh, Ken, well, the, you you the, take this next section.
2: Okay, so <laughs> a lot of teaching, a lot of reading from the missile, from the instruction from paragraph 79. Um, And now we're going to try and cram a (laughs) little, we're going to try and, (laughs) we're going to try and cram a little of apologetics into this because, you know, the question is why do we believe this or how did we come to believe this? Now, this is a subject I want to say to those listening and watching. This is a subject that we devoted a number of episodes of on the journey with Matt and Ken to some months back. In fact, if you want to get the whole story, you need to look, you need to watch episodes 35 through 44 thirty five through forty four where we covered this in great detail, but um I will try to just summarize very briefly here how it is that I personally came to believe in what is referred to as the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. and I'm really just giving the steps to sort of just sort of uh, you know laying out the you know just the just the, the basic steps without being able to fill them in too much okay um, it it began for me, you guys. Really, uh, when I read the early church fathers and I read the works of great early church historians, I could see that the church from its earliest days believed in the things that you're saying here. It believed in the real presence of Christ. It believed that in the Eucharist, bread and wine are changed and become the body and blood of Christ. And I'll just give two quotations here. But for instance, St. Ignatius, okay, he's the bishop of the church in Antioch. He's a disciple of the Apostle John himself. He's one of the earliest post-apostolic writers that we have. And in his letter to the church in Smyrna, Ignatius mentions a certain group of people whom he clearly conceives as being outside the fellowship of the Catholic Church. In fact, they're docetists. They're those who believe that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. He just appeared to be a human being. But listen to how he describes them at one point. He says, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, now I'm doing a little reading, because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins, and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes, okay? They they, they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is from a man, okay, Imagine me back then, all right? I'm reading this stuff for the first time. This is from a man who learned his doctrine from the same person who wrote the fourth gospel, okay? From the Apostle John, okay? And then there's St. Justin Martyr. Uh, Here's a passage that uh, Matt referred to. Uh, a moment or two ago. This is written around 150 AD. He describes the actual change that occurs when the Eucharistic prayer is said. And this is what Justin Martyr said. For not as common bread or common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught. Okay, think about it. He was made incarnate by the word of God. We too have been taught that the food that has been made into the Eucharist, I mean, hear all these words, the food that has been made (laughs) into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. I mean, those words just blew me away when I first read them, but this is what is being said, this is what the early church believes. And now reading the early church fathers, and believe me, because I have to make this short, there are so many more, so many more quotations like these. I, I realized, you guys, that there were really only two options for me. Either I had to conclude that the entire church had just departed radically from the apostolic teaching and departed so quickly, so early, so universally that you can't even find a debate about it anywhere. I mean, think about that. They had to depart, by the time of Ignatius of Antioch and Justin Martyr, Irenaeus and the others, they had to have departed from the apostolic teaching. That is, if the apostolic teaching was that the bread and wine are just symbols by which we remember, they had to have departed so quickly, and as I said, so universally, that there's not even a debate about it. There's no one even standing up and saying, you guys are going off the deep end the apostles didn't teach this they said that it was bread and wine by which we remember and that's all there is to it it was either that or i would have to conclude that this was the apostolic teaching that what the early church fathers are repeating and saying in so many different ways is what the apostles taught them okay so now where this led me then and these these bits here, I have to just again sketch out like almost like a cartoon outline. But wh- this led me, you guys, to want to dive back into the scripture and see what I might see. You know, take a fresh look at what the Bible might say about this subject. And what did I find? I'm going to make a se- uh, three points quickly. First, I found this pattern of miraculous meals, and Matt and I spent a whole episode just on this back when we did the series. I found this pattern of miracle meals that runs really throughout the entire Bible from the manna that God gave his people in the wilderness to the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, who on not one occasion, but on several occasions, they multiply some little bit of food, you know, bread, oil, whatever, into something that can feed a large multitude to our Lord in himself, taking five loaves, two fish, and feeding thousands of men and women and children. So I began to see this pattern of miracle meals that exist all the way through the Bible. And, and, and yet here's the, here's the sinker really, because how does this fact or how does this pattern have anything to do with the Eucharist? Well, I, I found that the exact same four verbs that are used to describe Jesus' action in the feeding of the 5,000 Where we read that he took the food, count the verbs. He took the food, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. My mind was kind of blown when I found that those exact same four verbs are used to describe Jesus' actions in the Last Supper. Where we read, I'm quoting from one of the Gospels, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And it struck me all at once that the Last Supper was being presented here after the pattern of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. It's being presented to us as, a, as another of these miraculous meals, you know, in line with the manna, Elijah, Elisha, the feeding of the 5,000, another one of these miracle meals in which some kind of a miracle is taking place. Okay, then there was St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and there's a lot there, but just quickly, in chapter 10, verses one through six, St. Paul compares the Eucharist to the supernatural food and drink that the Israelites received in the wilderness during their wilderness journeys. In chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, St. Paul tells us straight out that when we share the bread and the cup in the Eucharist, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. We are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. And then in chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, he warns his readers that to receive the Eucharist unworthily is to sin against the body and blood of Christ. Notice he doesn't say it would be to sin against the bread and the wine, which are symbolizing the body and blood. It is to sin against the body and blood of Christ. And then of course, finally, there was the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, where Jesus announces that he is going to give his body and blood as food and drink for his disciples. And he insists, and he insists repeatedly. I don't know how many times, I haven't counted it. Repeatedly he insists that his disciples must eat his flesh, must drink his blood. He even allows many of those who had followed him to walk away rather than explain simply that he was only speaking symbolically. You know, I'm, I'm only talking symbolically. He doesn't do that. Well, for me, again, I've summarized here in about five minutes um, a, a number of episodes that we that we did in detail when we did a series on the Eucharist, Matt and I. But for me, you guys, the, all of this added up, and there's more, but this added up to the conclusion that the faith of the early church was not a departure from the teaching of Scripture but flowed naturally from the teaching of scripture and simply made explicit in all these beautiful quotations from the early church was making explicit what is presented in the New Testament in a more implicit and veiled way, meaning that no one comes out in the New Testament and says, bread and wine, we bring them forward, prayer of consecration, they are changed. That, that doesn't come out explicitly explicitly. It is explicit in the early church fathers. And my conclusion was, no, they were not departing from the faith. In fact, you cannot find a debate in Christian history, a serious debate about this issue until, I believe, the ninth century. And there was no one, uh, there was no body of Christians, no denomination, if you will, within Christianity that taught that the bread and wine are merely symbols and remain symbols throughout the Eucharist until Zwingli in the 16th century. And just one more point. By the way, when we speak of the prayer of consecration and the change that takes place, I just want to highlight, we're not talking about magic words here. Uh, we're not talking about some incantation, you know, being mumbled in Latin, of course, being mumbled over the, over the elements. <laughs> um, we're, what we're talking about is God's power to answer the prayer of the church that he's given us, and and to give us what he's promised. That's what we're talking about. But anyway, in a nutshell, looking at history and looking at the biblical material, these are some of the, the, the reasons that I came to believe in the church's teaching on the Eucharist, the real presence. And I know you wanted to add something, Kenny, from a more philosophical uh, point of view. So go ahead and take it away. Unless someone wants yeah. to comment on, on uh, that. Uh,
0: l- let me pause before I go on to that, Matt. A- anything you want to jump in there with f- f- first?
1: But two quick things. Just on the on the question of magic, bear in mind that magic typically or, or witchcraft is um I want this thing. I am going to control the elements so that I get these things for myself, right? It is you putting yourself in dominion over supernatural forces, whereas this is us being obedient to a supernatural uh order and promise. But the I mean there there are a hundred ways, and I would very much encourage people to go back. Ken did an awesome job of exploring. Um, this question of of what the Eucharist means to Catholics um, in nine episodes. Uh, Just to sum up one little piece of it, you know, we always talk about John chapter six and Jesus saying the eat my flesh and and drink my blood um, thing a couple of times, but I would refer people back to John chapter one in light of what you just said, um, Ken. And when John says that the word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us, he This is just a couple sentences before he says uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that through him all things were made. Flip back to Genesis 1. How does God create? He speaks things into existence. He says, let there be light. John tells us that when God the Father speaks those words, it is the second person of the Trinity that is manifesting that. Fast forward to the Last Supper That same person of the Trinity, now incarnate, is saying, "This is my body," and you're telling me Mm -hmm. it has no power. Then, like, yeah, I mean, there's just a hundred things, yeah, a hundred things to reflect upon in in regard to that. But that's just a couple as you were going back through it.
0: Those are so good, Matt, and they they actually provide awesome segue into kind of where I at least I would like to end today with some of the more theological slash philosophical ways in which we can answer, well, how can you say that bread and wine became the body and blood of Jesus? I I just want to remind everyone of the thing that we said at the very beginning of this episode, and that is that the Mass is a prayer. Like, I love what Ken said about it's not magic words. Well, how can you say all this happened? Because we have prayed the prayers that God himself has given us in the words of God, that God has given us in the words of Jesus, and as Catholics, we believe that god who tells us to pray these prayers answers them like he he really does he really really answers them not just in our minds but in the world of time space and matter um it's, but still our our contemporary minds struggle with this i admit that it was in some ways hard for me like so many people i did a lot of reading you know when i was looking at Catholic theology. And I want to share for anyone who might be helped by it, an insight that was most helpful to me. You guys know things resonate with different people in different ways. So this may or may not be helpful. But personally, when I was trying to understand transubstantiation, I read, among other things, uh, Bishop Robert Barron's book titled Eucharist. And in there's a section in the book, guys, where, um, he unpacks this helpful philosophical perspective, which I had heard before, but I'd never really seen it uh, applied to theological things. This this philosophical uh, concept called the speech act theory. The speech act theory, and I just want to read a little excerpt, very short excerpt from page seventy four of Bishop Robert Barron's book on the Eucharist. He says this quote: "In the wake of this debate about how transubstantiation is possible. A number of theologians put forward with the help of both biblical scholarship and contemporary philosophical research, a theory that reconciled the classical teaching with the best elements of the new approach. Much of this centered around a consideration of the power of the divine word. Pause. Matt, that goes back to what you said. These aren't just our words, they're God's words, and God's words are the power at work here. Not magic, but God's own words. Back to the quote. The philosophers J.L. Austin and Ludwig Wittgenstein remind us that our words can function not only descriptively, but performatively as well. And then he gives some examples. On the one hand, the words That house is blue indicate a state of affairs, but the words, you're fired, when uttered by one's superior, do not simply point out what is the case. They change what is the case. Similarly, if a properly uninformed and deputized, uh, sorry, uniformed, if a properly uniformed and deputized officer of the law were to say to you, you're under arrest, you would in fact be under arrest precisely through the power of his pronouncement or if a properly designated umpire were to shout you're out as a major at a major league baseball player slid into third base the unfortunate player would in fact whether he liked it or not be out the umpire's verbal expression having objectively changed the flow of the game. We can, in Austin's famous phrase, do things with words. A close quote there. And I was sharing with Ken yesterday when I was talking about this quote, what happened to me on my wedding day. You know, 30 years ago on my wedding day, my pastor uh, stood with me and my wife in front of everybody after we said our vows. And then he launched into this interesting thing. He said at the end of it all, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel, and according to the laws of the state, I now pronounce you man and wife. And a change happened to me. A category changed. I moved out of the category of bachelor and into the category of husband. My wife moved out of the category of fiancé and into the category of wife. We became those things as a result of all of this liturgical action and these sacramental realities, realities and the speech action, I will say, of the pastor who's going on and on about his authority to say things. And I really did, you know, it's so crazy, guys. I really became a husband and everybody started acting like I really was a husband after that. It's, (laughs) it's crazy. Like I, like is he, let's get him under, let's get him under a microscope and see if he's really a husband. You know, no, they, they acted like I really had changed into a husband as a result of, of all this. So that just for, for my part, guys, was so helpful to me. And as you said, Matt, we're, it's not our words. It's God's words, even our prayers are the words of Jesus. And I'll, you know, I'll what just I'm, stop right there.
2: What I'm thinking, Kenny, is I'm, I'm glad that I don't have that power when I call you an idiot, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that power. <laughs>
1: well, but to take it back to that question of power and authority, yeah. well, since you brought up baseball, this is a great example. As a Cincinnati Reds fan, <laughs> if we're playing the St. Louis Cardinals and, uh, you know, one of them slides into second base and – I can see that the tag got there before the runner did. (laughs) I can yell, he's out at the screen. Yeah. Right? Um, Right. The manager of the Cincinnati Reds and perhaps the whole dugout can, like, jump and cheer and yell, he's out. Right? Um, Jeff Brantley on the Reds radio broadcast and say, that guy's out by a mile. But only the umpire can say, he's out. And it works, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So there's it's the same thing when we go back to the idea of assisting at mass. We're there, we're participating, we're offering ourselves right. together with the priest, but the priest's hands are the ones that are consecrated. So, yes. so that's that's the operative.
0: Exactly. And even in our prayer, we say, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. We're acknowledging mm-hmm. that the speech act theory just like you know in in anything where words accomplish things there has there's a la- there are layers of things that have to be in place has to be the right person at the right time in the right yeah. circumstance saying the right words right. in the right way and if all of those things line up then this brings about this new reality that happens as a result of speech and i was like man i can get my he- head wrapped around that and I just wanted to sh- share that, you know, for those who are, are watching with you guys. Very It That good. really helped me a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I draw a cartoon bat on a piece of paper, <laughs> it's just a picture of a cartoon bat. If Commissioner Gordon flashes an image of a bat in the sky, <laughs> Batman becomes present. <laughs> there's no such thing as a perfect well, you know analogy, what? but like there's certain things I just don't have the authority to do.
2: You know what? We're getting really refined in this discussion, but, but let me just come out and say, I promise you guys, I will never call you idiots again, Okay. I mean, just in case, just in case I have more authority than I think I have.
1: Any parting words before we wrap this up? Because we've covered a lot of ground. uh,
2: No, I think uh, that
1: hopefully clarified. I think that
2: is helpful. I think that looking at early church history, looking at the biblical material, looking at theology and this, this added, you know, aspect can help us to understand. Yeah, I I agree. It can help us to understand how such a thing can happen, especially if God is the one speaking the words. Back to the Incarnation, back back to Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, back to creation, back to the Incarnation. Those are my parting
1: words. Well, once again, gentlemen, we have spent an hour talking about a section of the Mass that's about four minutes long. So uh, (laughs) this is another opportunity for us to kind of like step back and think about like where we're going next there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the mass afterwards but i hope that the people who've been watching this mm-hmm. series on the mass that's hours upon hours long are thinking like the mass is hours and hours it's just a, there's just so much richness so much to explore yes. uh and so hopefully this has helped give a little clarity to that um if by you the want to way, watch matt, biggest by, episodes in this series by the way oh. matt i do
2: have to insert one thing my church never saying the doxology when we brought forward our our um our, our gifts, our offerings. We sang Can't Buy Me Love by the Beatles.
1: <laughs> oh. Well, that's why humanism is harder with a person like you. So, there you go. <laughs> But check out previous episodes in the series at chnetwork.org. We had a whole On the Journey page there with a um, hundred and some episodes at this point. Uh, check those out. You can also check out our online community. We're actively involved in there. Um, there's questions going around. There's a lot of people who are at various stages in the journey you can interact with. Uh, maybe someone who's a step farther down the road than you, um, or maybe someone that you're a step farther down the road from and can per- perhaps help out in some way. That's community.chnetwork.org uh, there if you <laughs> want to find out uh, more about how to involve with that. And I will at least get the donation page website right at chnetwork.org slash donate if you want to make this and other uh, resources from us possible at no charge to the people who come mm-hmm. seeking help from us. And so many of you have done just um, really humbling Work to, to make that happen. So thank you for that. I'm Matt Swam, Ken Hensley, Kenny Burchard. Thank you again. We'll talk to you next Good time. Good day,
0: around. gentlemen. Bless you guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.